This week we're in John 16, verses 29 to 33. I actually want to back up to verse 25 and read through verse 33, though, if you're there. So follow me. Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we come into your presence. We know only through the blood of Christ. Thank you for sending your Son to purchase our freedom from sin, our freedom from judgment, our entrance into your kingdom, your family, your presence. So, Lord, the reality that I'm praying to you now and a congregation full of your people are joining me in prayer to you now is, again, not something that we ever want to take for granted. We know that it was purchased by, by blood. So we treasure every moment at your throne in your presence and ask now that you might walk us through this text by your Spirit and do what you promise to do during these times, which is reveal yourself to us and just send us on our way as a corporate body on the mission that you have laid out for us in this world. So all this we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The setting of our text, if you're familiar with this section of the Gospel of John, is the upper room. So, On the night before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples into an upper room in Jerusalem to, for one one final time in his time with them, prepare them for his imminent departure from them. And if you've compared the Gospels before, John goes into a lot more detail than Matthew, Mark, or Luke about all that happened and was discussed that evening before they eventually headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Chapters 13 to 17 of John's Gospel are what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And if you were to just search, because I'm sure you've picked up on this in in your reading, two phrases stand out, and if you were to search them, some interesting things are revealed. One of those is the, the time referent, a little while. I actually read that phrase a couple of times in our text, um, verses 25 to 33. If you were to just do a, a Bible search of the time referent 
a little while. You would find it scattered here and there throughout the Bible. You'd find it even like four times scattered throughout Isaiah's 66 chapter prophecy. But when we come to the Gospel of John, we find John not only leading the way in using that phrase seven times in his Gospel, but interestingly, six of those seven times are in this upper room discourse. That's significant. Every time he uses it, it is either in the context of Jesus directly teaching his disciples and using that language in reference to himself or his disciples actually quoting or questioning what Jesus meant when he used those words in reference to himself. When we think about the phrase actually communicating a period of time in our text, a little while, it suddenly means tomorrow. So Jesus saying in chapter 12 and verse 35, the light is with you a little while. He means a few days, if not less than 24 hours, seeing it as one of the last things that John records before this upper room discourse. In the upper room discourse itself, we find him saying, in a little while, you will see me no more. And that means tomorrow you see me no more. The disciples have obviously been pretty perplexed about Jesus' language because they've responded to his language with questions like, what do you mean? Or Jesus, where are you going? Or Peter even saying, can I come with you? Everything that was about to happen to Jesus, including his Betrayal and his death on the cross was clearly not in the disciples' plans for their Messiah. But one of Jesus' points in all of this talk about leaving his disciples is to continue to hold out to them the other end of all of his previous conversation about being sent from the Father or coming from above to make atonement for the, sin, for the sins of his people by his death on the cross. So, He says he's come from the Father to fulfill this purpose. And now he's saying, once it is fulfilled, he will return to the Father. If you will allow me to borrow a phrase from a commentary that I have on this text. All of Jesus framing his life within the boundaries of the language of, I've come from the Father for a purpose, and when that purpose is fulfilled in my death and resurrection, I will return to the Father. All of his framing his life within that language is communicating one thing, that when, when it's all over, when he's died and when he's risen, the mission is accomplished. It's what he's communicating. That's precisely what he's trying to get across to his disciples right here and now in this upper room Discourse. The other significant thread to trace throughout this letter is the phrase, I've said these things to you so that. So we have the, the time referent a little while, and it's come to mean in the context of our passage, like tomorrow, everything that Jesus says is going to happen in a little while. He's saying less than 24 hours, the light is going to no longer be with you. I'm leaving you. You'll see me no longer. The other significant phrase, however, is I've said these things to you so that. Or I've spoken these things to you so that. Again, there is a high concentration of that language in this section of John's letter. Jesus uses those words to explain to his disciples why he's telling them the things that he's telling 
them. So in the process of him speaking to them about his own suffering and death and departure from them and their own suffering in his absence as his disciples, he says to them in chapter 15 and verse 11, I've said these things to you that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full. Or chapter 15 and verse 17, I've said these things to you so that you might love one another. Particularly in our chapter, chapter 16 and verse 1, he says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Or chapter 16 and verse 4, I've spoken these things to you so that when their hour comes, and what he means by that is when they put you out of the synagogues and when they put you to death thinking that they're offering service to God, I've spoken these things to you so that when it happens, you might remember that I told you beforehand. In our particular set of verses, Jesus says in chapter 16 and verse 33, I've said these things to you so that in me you might have peace. So in a little while, I'm going to leave you by means of being betrayed and arrested and tortured and crucified. And although you will see me again because I will rise ultimately shortly, I will leave and return to my Father to see me no more because my mission on earth will be accomplished And when I'm gone, they'll come after you and they'll cause you great suffering, even put some of you to death. But I'm telling you all of this before it happens so that when it happens, rather than falling away, you might remain joyful and loving. And chapter 16 and verse 33, find your peace in me. Those are some incredible words especially in light of the fact that Jesus says he's telling his disciples everything that is about to happen so that they won't fall away, knowing full well that they will all fall away. When the disciples think they finally get all the figurative speech that Jesus has been using with them in verse 29, they say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you, and this is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus says, no. You actually don't get what you think you get just yet. He he says in verse 31, do you now believe? They say, ah, now we get it, and this is why we believe. And Jesus says, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. So Jesus tells them everything that he tells them before it happens, so that when it happens, they won't fall away, but they will all fall away within a matter of hours. One of the inner circle even denying that he knows Jesus three times when under pressure. So even in his words, Jesus is holding out all the themes that we've emphasized this month in our short series, 
hope of restoration, love from God and for one another, fullness of joy, and now in verse 33, peace. I've spoken these things to you that in me you might have peace. The obvious question I think to wrestle with is, what did he mean by that? In the context of this conversation, there are a few observations that I think might be helpful for us to find and to embrace the peace that Jesus came to this earth to bring his people. First observation is probably, um, should be the most obvious from our text. It's in verse 33. It's in the, the verse that, the, the sentence that I've read a couple of times now, and it is the simple reality that the peace Jesus is talking about is only ever always found in him. So again, rehearse what he's telling them in this conversation. He says, I'm leaving you. I am returning to my Father. My mission is accomplished once I'm risen from the dead, but you will be hunted, excluded from society, thrown in prison, and some of you even killed because of me. So if you, if you think about that upper room setting, he is certainly not sitting in a room with his disciples around a table where their eyes are fixed on him as he's the only one in the room talking. What he's certainly not doing is using the words that he's speaking to them in that setting to prepare them for a time where they're going to have to look elsewhere once he's gone for everything they found in him while they were with him on the earth. He's actually saying, life is going to be really hard for you in this world. Because verse 3 Those who will make life hard on you in this world do not know me or my Father. And the implication is just like those who will betray me, arrest me, beat me, spit on me, mock me, and execute me, and according to verse 20, they'll rejoice in the process, thinking they are offering service to God, Jesus says they're going to do the same for you. So he's plainly telling them, don't expect much more from this world than what you've seen in this world's reaction to me. So even though he's preparing them for his departure from them, he is not telling them that they're going to have to start looking elsewhere for everything that they have found in him during their time with him. He's actually saying the contrary. I'm leaving you, but the peace I came to give you will continue to be found only in Me, even though I'm not physically present with you any longer. And the question is, well, how how is that possible? The disciples were processing everything that Jesus was saying to them with with deep sorrow. Verse 6 tells us that clearly. It says the disciples' hearts were filled with sorrow. But Jesus says, even though you're sorrowful and you don't, understand right now everything that is about to take place. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. While Jesus continues to explain what the Spirit will do in reference to the world, it's the section where he's saying, When he comes, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. If we skip what the Spirit will do in reference to the world, 
and come to verse 13, he begins to speak about what the Spirit will do in reference to God's people, the disciples of Jesus. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is leaving the disciples, but he will send the Holy Spirit to indwell his disciples. The indwelling spirit then being the means by which Jesus' disciples will continue to find their peace in him even after he is no longer physically present with them. The Spirit's role in our passage is summed up in verse 14, and it is to glorify Jesus to his disciples over and over and over all the time, every day. The Spirit never rests in this because the Spirit never rests. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father to this world for a purpose, on a mission, and is returning in our text to the Father once that mission is complete, even so, the Holy Spirit has been sent by both the Father and the Son on a mission to hold forth the absolute supreme glory of the risen Christ to Jesus' disciples. And he specifically says here that he does that by directing the disciples' hearts always toward the truth. And that is not an isolated statement from he will glorify me. It's rather a means by which that end is accomplished. All truth pointing to and revolving around the glory of the Son of God. So the Spirit was sent to indwell the disciples of Jesus and from within to keep our hearts fixed on His glory by all that is true in this world and all that is true in the Word that He has given us. Later on in verse 13, he says, The Spirit will also hold forth the glory of Jesus to his disciples by declaring to the disciples the things that are to come. So we could say, peace is maintained in the disciples of Jesus. So in us, even in the absence of the physical Jesus from us, by the Spirit, not only by continually revealing His glory in what He has done for us in His death and resurrection, but also by holding out to us all that is to come. And again, that's not an isolated statement from He will glorify me. Nor is it far removed at all from all that the Spirit reveals about the glory of Jesus in all that He's done for us. So, He will declare to you the things that are to come is the looking forward to the eternal glory of Jesus because when Jesus died and rose from the dead, He secured for us an inheritance and a future that is eternally inseparable from His being. Because all that is to come for us is a generous sharing with us of all that is His, not the least of which is a sharing of his own father with us. 
whom the disciples at this point seem to still be somewhat confused about. But whom Jesus now begins to say in verses like verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So for three and a half years now, it has been the disciples asking Jesus and Jesus asking the Father on their behalf. And the Father answering Jesus and affirming his love for his Son. But now Jesus is telling the disciples that what he is about to accomplish in his atoning death on the cross and in his resurrection and what the Spirit will come to reveal and maintain about the glory of all that he's about to accomplish is a relationship with his Father like they've seen Jesus, their Master, enjoy with him in their time with him on earth, asking and receiving. Joy, in verse 24, coming from asking the Father in the name of His Son and receiving from the Father on behalf of the Son. Listen to verse 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, For the Father Himself loves you. Because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. So the question that we asked a few moments ago is, Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you so that in me you might have peace. Well, you're leaving us. How is that going to work? And Jesus is in essence saying, yes, I'm leaving you, but I'm not. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you and he will never leave you and therefore I will never leave you because he and I and the Father are one. And his mission at all times in you will be to hold forth my glory to you so that even though I'm not sitting at the table with you, your eyes can remain fixed on me. All that I've accomplished in my death and resurrection and all that I've secured for you for all of eternity not the least of which is a relationship with my Father in which He will love you as He loves me. So most basically, I've spoken these things to you so that in me you might have peace means peace for a disciple of Jesus is forever located in Him, never outside of Him, always in what he has accomplished in his death, what he secured for us in his resurrection, what the Spirit maintains in us as a gift from his Father who now loves us. I think the obvious application is don't search for peace anywhere else. And if for some reason you're in a season of life where just you have have peace and areas of life that just seem to contradict what Jesus says is in store for his disciples. So what I mean by that, if if your life is just predominantly peace and little suffering, my encouragement to you is just to make sure that you consider that a gift 
of mercy from his loving hand. But also to warn you, don't stake any future peace on that kind of peace continuing continuing indefinitely because Jesus says over and over and over again, it won't, it can't. So the appropriate response to all of this is, God, thank you. God, thank you for sending Jesus not to break down every wall of hostility politically or or nationally or religiously or economically in this world and to create some kind of a world with a totally level playing field of tolerance and equality and calm and, and quietness and that being the peace that we're searching for or that somehow he came to give because it's not. It's rather, God, thank you for sending your son into this world to give us a peace that can't be found in this world. Even though there might be times when as a gift of your mercy, God, it is to some degree reflected in this world. But God, thank you that the peace that is in Jesus transcends and trumps the hostility all over the place in this world and always remains fixed, located, never moved outside of the person of your son. And thank you also, God, for sending the Spirit to maintain this in us because without him, every one of us would always continue on a frantic search to find and maintain peace elsewhere and we would be disappointed every single time. As you full well might be this morning, if you are searching for peace in your life or peace with God anywhere other than in the person of Jesus who atoned for your sins in his death on the cross and rose triumphantly from the grave. So in me, you might have peace means most basically true peace. The peace that Jesus came to give is found only ever always in him. The other side of that coin which you've already talked about, but it's, it's worth pointing out here, is that what peace eternally found in Jesus for his disciples cost, actually, let me frame it this way. What an incredible contrast for Jesus to talk about peace in him for his disciples for all of eternity coming at the cost of his very non-peaceful, bloody, horrific slaughter and his very non-peaceful bloody horrific slaughter coming as the result of our very non-peaceful aggression and hostility and rebellion against our creator Paul sums this contrast up well in the passage that you'll hear Earl read a little bit later in our service in Colossians 1, verses 19 to 21. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace By the blood of the cross, that's what it cost. So when the Spirit 
continually glorifies Jesus in the hearts of those whom he indwells by recalling the events that in our text will soon unfold, but from our perspective unfolded almost 2,000 years ago. We understand that we have already talked about that those responsible for Jesus' execution did it gladly thinking they were serving God in the process. But those people were merely willing means of God bringing about his eternal plan. Which eternal plan was to send Jesus into this world to be the means by which he might destroy the barrier that our sin had constructed between us and him and eternally satisfy and calm his hostility against us. So stop there for a minute and consider something. Consider the direction from which hostility is being satisfied and peace is being pursued and implemented. It's one direction. It's God toward us. What we're talking about is God acting in the person of His Son, Jesus, to reconcile His enemies, us, to Himself, and to change His disposition toward us from anger and wrath and just condemnation to what Jesus now says, the Father Himself loves you. I'm telling you this, that in me you might have peace. The world is against you. They level their attacks against you because they hate Jesus, because He demands their repentance. And since He's no longer here, they're coming after His followers. But in the midst of that, the glory of the person of Jesus that the Spirit keeps before our eyes is that He has, by the will of His Father, absorbed all that was hovering over us and directed toward us from the Father because of our sins against Him. So peace in Jesus is a Spirit-given reality because the Father has dealt with our rebellion against Him and His hostility against us by sending His Son to absorb it in our place. And because Jesus is who He is, sinless, eternal Son of God, who rose from the dead, hostility and wrath and separation is not still being poured out on Him as it would be on us had He not stood in our place. But because Jesus stood condemned in our place and absorbed his Father's wrath for us, God has been satisfied so much so that his posture and his promise toward us is now love and peace. And the Holy Spirit will forever glorify Jesus by reminding those of us who are now in this loving relationship with his Father who know His peace rather than His hostility, that the love and peace that we enjoy is in Jesus because He absorbed wrath and hostility and purchased in blood the contrary for us. So, 
I've said these things to you so that in me you might have peace. What does that mean? It, it means peace is only ever always found in the person of Jesus in what he accomplished in his death and promises in our future. It means that the peace that he came to give us came at the cost of his violent, bloody slaughter in which he satisfied God's hostility against us because of our sin against him. And, and last, and briefly, it, it means, verse 33, as Jesus concludes this discourse, I have over come the world. That statement is again inseparable from everything that we've already said. Jesus was sent by his father to die in our place. That in his death he would cancel our sins and absorb his father's wrath and purchase for us an eternal inheritance in which all that is his is ours including his father who now loves us just as he loves Jesus. So I've overcome the world in the context of multiple warnings of suffering and death means I've purchased you out of this world. Momentarily to a new community that continues in this world called the church but which doesn't find its peace and joy and fulfillment in this world. Which is why peace and love and joy and all that is true and good is only ever always located in Jesus, because he's the king of the kingdom in which we are now citizens. He's the head of the body of which we are now members. He is the cornerstone of the building of which we are now bricks and stones. He is the husband of the bride which we now compose. We have been purchased out of this world to a new world, but this new world continues to exist in the old world because it is here that all that God gives us in Christ, love, joy, peace, hope, is meant to be expressed and overflowed toward each other and toward our world as a means of, of complimenting our verbal witness of all that Jesus has accomplished. And when we receive comments like those that were made by an employee actually of the Colonial Club last week um, to one of our members, Abby, who is serving some needy people connected here, and the, the comment I'm probably... This isn't verbatim, but the, the gist of it was that of all, all the people this particular lady knows in Sun Prairie, the Ladies of Christ Fellowship were the only people that she knew would truly serve these particular people in need. And when comments like that are given, it, it should encourage us that in this particular instance, God's generosity to us in Christ is overflowing and it's being seen. So that verbal witness for Jesus in his death and resurrection is, is both being confirmed and, and complemented by these overflowing gifts that come from God by the Spirit. And while it should on the one hand encourage us, Christ Fellowship, I'm also 
encouraging us to always be striving for more. I want to encourage you to strive for more in your verbal witness. And I want to encourage you to strive for more and be intentional and sacrificial to spill love and hope and joy and peace in Christ over to others and not just each other. But so that it might be seen in our community as a complimenting witness to our verbal testimony that Jesus has died and he's risen and he's king and Lord and will be forever. So I've overcome the world means all of that, but it also ultimately means the world will not prevail. It will not prevail. Jesus has conquered all that is hostile against him and his people and contrary to his nature and offensive to him because he has done what he said he would do from the beginning. He's crushed the head of the serpent and he's judged the ruler of this world. And when he's finished welcoming the remainder of his ransom ones into his kingdom and lavishing them with the first fruits of all that is theirs in him as well, then the reality of I have overcome the world will mean the judgment of this world and everything that's sinful and cursed and unrepentant and defiant. And then for all of eternity, the the peace and the love and the joy and the hope that the Spirit now maintains in us in Jesus' absence and in our existence in this hostile world, that will universally prevail and forever magnify the glory of the risen Son who will rule over his kingdom forever in the very love, joy, and peace that we now enjoy in him as our Savior. So Christ fellowship, just as Jesus instructed his disciples, be of good cheer. Let these words that I'm saying to you bring you good cheer. So Christ fellowship, be of good cheer. Because the baby who was born is the savior of the world. And he's overcome the world. And you are in him. So peace be to you in love with joy in Christ Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Father, your gifts, your gifts to us are extravagant. None of us could have wrote, written this script. It was written by you before the world began. And every reflection that we have on it from your word and totally complemented by our experience since we've been regenerated just confirms what you say. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. From you, dear Father. 
And Lord, yet we live in this hostile world on purpose by your design so that this world which just fuels hostility after hostility might see the contrary in the church. And Lord, would you would you do here among the members of Christ's fellowship what only, what only the Spirit in His miraculous power can do? Would you overcome all that still lies within us in these bodies of flesh and in this sinful world so that what pours out of us is, is glaringly contrary and glaringly glorifying to everybody who's, who sees it. So that as Peter says, when people come asking a reason of the hope that is in us, their ears are open to hear our verbal witness about Jesus. Lord, let us reach people in our community, please. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.